Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Edelberg. And once again, welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 170. 170 episodes. Can't believe it. Well, if you haven't noticed, and I'm sure that you have, I have been slipping a little bit on the consistency of episode releases. And that is a big no-no in the podcast world. Got to be consistent. And for the most part, in the last two and a half years, I have been. But with some travel, that's been a little bit challenging. But I'm back home in South Florida, getting settled in. I have some great guests lined up. I'll be back on track very soon. So for everyone that is used to getting an episode each and every week, my apologies, but they're coming fast. So make sure you are subscribed. That being said, as many of you know, the best amateurs in the country were in Carrollton, Texas this past week competing in the inaugural East-West matches at Merido Golf Club, and I was there from start to finish. Congrats to the West team for their improbable come-from-behind victory, erasing a five-point deficit on Sunday. It came down to the final match on the 18th hole. You cannot ask for it to be scripted any better. Instead of doing a recap by myself, you're going to hear from one of the heroes of the West team, Patrick Kristovich. He secured a half point on the 18th hole in the anchor match against Nathan Smith that ultimately gave the win to the West. That episode will be released very soon. We will be talking all things East-West matches, all things Merido on that episode, so stay tuned. Not too much as far as housekeeping goes. It is Masters Week. Sending out some good wishes and some serious mojo to all the amateurs in the field, especially the ones that have been guests on the back of the range. Andy Ogletree, John Augustine, you know, I spent a lot of time with them at the Walker Cup last year and at the USAM this year. Uh, Lucas Michelle has been a big supporter of this podcast. Uh, he gave me some time during the U.S. Open. His buddy Will Davenport is on the bag, so Will, try not to get kicked out. Abel Gallegos, Yushin Lin, they're going to be there as well. So it's going to be a unique Masters. You know, I feel bad for everyone in the field that there's no galleries especially feel bad for the amateurs, but it's going to be an unforgettable experience. I know that everyone is going to be watching the Masters. Like everyone else, I am looking forward to watching some golf at Augusta National. I posted a lot on social media, especially Instagram, during the East-West matches, um, really getting into photography and video work. It seems to go hand-in-hand -hand with the podcast, so make sure you're subscribed Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find everything at thebackoftherange.com, where to find merch, uh, where to download every single episode in the history of this podcast. It's all there. Just go to the website, thebackoftherange.com. My guest on this episode is none other than the 2017 U.S. Senior Amateur Champion, Sean Knapp. Much like the last guest on the podcast, Nathan Smith, Sean is a Pennsylvania guy, blue collar, he traveled a different road to find greatness in the amateur ranks. He's not a D1 blue chipper. He never played professionally, but some fortunate breaks and relationships put him in the right place to succeed. You're going to learn a lot in this episode, but you know it's not going to be how to hit a flop shot or how to best prepare for your U.S. amateur qualifier. You're going to learn some life lessons that will show you that passion and determination can pretty much take you anywhere you want to go. Now, before you start thinking this episode is going to be all serious, 
it's not. Sean dropped some incredible tales and stories about Palmer, Hogan, and even Tiger Woods. Did you know that Sean faced Tiger Woods in the 1995 U.S. Amateur? Well, now you do, and now you're going to hear the story. Here's an interesting stat. Sean's age and his number of USGA appearances are almost the exact same number. In fact, as you'll hear in just a few seconds, we picked up our conversation discussing the 2020 U.S. Amateur at Bandon Dunes, where I met Sean for the very first time. This is an epic episode, one that I think that everyone is going to enjoy. Sean, it's an honor. Welcome to the back of the range. How are you? Ben, uh, great to be here. I've heard a lot about the show and um, not so sure what, what you have interest in me, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be a part of it. All right. So we're off to a, a rousing start here. Um, positive reinforcement by the guests that, that we need to get a little bit more of that. So this, there are plenty of reasons why you're on the podcast. Um, well, let's just start with, with one of the highlights of my experience uh, at the U.S. Amateur Bandon Dunes. Let's just kick it off this way. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to your start in the game, which is definitely something I, that we all need to uh, hear about. But one of my highlights, as many people know, I was at the USAM at Bandon Dunes doing some coverage for the USGA and also the back of the range. But one of my highlights was being out at Bandon Trails and I'm watching these the, the barrage of college kids and juniors come through and and um, you know, got their their college stand bags, and then I see this, shall we say, this marquee pairing of these four uh, gentlemen. See how I did that, gentlemen coming through playing their practice. It was track. like four homeless people moving up the coast. But uh, go ahead. I, I mean, I, okay, that that sounds a little bit more accurate. But I'm being nice because you're you're a legend. You're a legend, Sean. So I'm showing respect. In my own mind, there. yes. I'm showing yes. respect here. So it's you. It's Dave Ryan. Um, it's, it's Doug Hansel, it's, it's Gene Elliott playing their practice rounds, uh, before the, the start of the U.S. Amateur and, um, just incredible to see. Now I'll clue everyone in on how many combined USGA championships you gentlemen share. But, um, when you get the call from the USGA saying, Hey, we're not having qualifying this year at the U.S. Amateur, you are in, you are receiving the exemption. Do you remember the first phone call maybe the four of you had, or, or did you four talk before your practice rounds? How do you share that great news with someone and just say, can you can you believe we get to do this? Well, you know, let me back it up. Uh, next year's U.S. Amateur is at Oakmont, which is approximately two blocks from my house. So way to endear the listeners to you, Sean. See, here's, here's a little tip with my listeners. If you tell them how Got close it. you are to legendary courses, that could drastically <laughs> yeah. affect the, the success of this episode, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I'm mostly a former caddy and, and waiter there. So oh, okay. not a member. That's fine. That's fine. Okay, so, that's fine. so, but uh, my first thought was why not next year? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, seriously, Gene set it up. Gene was instrumental. He, he he took care of it with the USGA, and um, man, what, that was cool. That was just really uh, that was just a remarkable couple days to share with those with those guys. And uh, seeing you out there, it was it was it was just a special place. Funny. So the, so the really cool thing about it is that I I kind of camped out on on when I was at Trails. I had a really nice spot to camp out on, which was right behind Seven Green, because I'd see the the whole seventh hole 
Seventh green, eight T, then coming up of ten green through the little trees by the, the halfway house, then eleven T. So I had a perfect spot to get a lot of action. And I see you guys on eight and then eh, let me walk the hole with you guys. So I'm talking to you, I'm talking to right. Dave and and uh, I can't remember who brought it up or I brought it up or something like so how how many USG championships have the four of you played in? And then you guys are all, huh, I don't know. Well, all right, guys. Well, I got to go. I got to go back. So I walked all the way back up the hole. And then here you guys coming up on 11 green. And I think it was you that said, well, we got it. We figured it out. I, I'm, we got a, it. I'm a math guy. Yep. Yeah. Helped, helped calculate that. So you guys talked about that the whole time as you're coming, as you're coming around. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I initiated it. I'm like, holy Toledo. I mean, that's. You know, w- 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 that's a great question. What What's the number? So, you know, Gene belts out his number <laughs> and, you know, Doug belts out his number and Dave belt, belts out his number. And I don't say anything. I just kind of had it in my head. Uh-huh. And, um, and so then I think we saw you on 11T. That's when we gave you the data. Yeah, so it's 151 combined USGA championships between you four. And the reason you weren't saying anything is because you, you got them all beat, don't you? I, I, yeah, I, I, not only that, I won the money for those two days. Now, they're not going to admit that, but, you okay. know, uh, real, seriously, yeah, I, you know, when I was, like, kind of flabbergasted. I was, like, how – how, how's, how, how do they don't have like double what I have, you know? Um, well, it just makes you sit back and appreciate it. And especially in an environment like that, Oh yeah. um, you know, chambers is sort of reflection, you know, for reflectionary, if that's a word, it, it makes you reflective of the things that you have and have had. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was, a, that was a special day. Well, um, I know that that time, uh, I, being able to play those two courses and, and share in, in a very unique U.S. amateur where, thank God, we actually got to play in the thing, uh, or you guys got to play because of COVID. So it was very, very fortunate that this thing ever happened. Um, yeah, isn't that the truth? Oh, gosh. Well, you mentioned you mentioned Oakmont, and I just there's so many things about your story that are just so incredible. And if you look down the list of all the accomplishments and all the, the championships that you've won in, in Pennsylvania and all your experiences, you look at this and you say, well, this guy was born with a club in his hand and he was basically whisked off from the, uh, from, you know, from the hospital over to the driving range. Just, you know, he's had a club in his hands since birth. And you already alluded to it. Growing up caddying at Oakmont, I can't think of a better place to learn the game but also learn all the benefits of having this game in your life so where do you start who, who gets you into oakmont to start catting where was your um, introduction to the game well can I, let me just take it one step backwards sure. and say that that um i think all of my earliest memories my childhood memories were related to sports and uh you know it was a basketball it was football it was baseball and um i was pretty good at all of them if i could be so egotistical to say that i, I feel like i could have played all of them you at the next that. level uh basketball i had the most success in um uh you know in high school and i went on to play at a fairly distinguished division two school but i didn't have a full scholarship so this is going to answer your question for you uh you know, like all college students, like, oh, my goodness, you need money. And I'll tell you, uh, what better way to make money than the caddy? You're outside. Uh, I, I was not involved with golf at that point. 
but the the availability to play on a Monday, uh, even if you didn't like the game of golf, um, you had to try. And, uh, uh, you know, Monday on caddy days at Oakmont, you still had that availability back then. And uh, that's how I got started. Um, so, you know, around the 18, 19, and, you know, I, I, I caddied regularly over the summers to kind of, you know, make weight, you know, for, for school. And um, as luck would have it, uh, after my second year of school, I, I kind of had a, a little disagreement about where I was at with my scholarship, with sure. the coach, and uh, it, it set me off in a different direction. Uh, I, I actually quit the team, and, um, I, you know, just like that, you know, the game that I loved, uh, the sports that I loved, it was gone. And uh, it was at that point that I began to pick up golf. Uh, so I didn't caddy probably until I was like 17 or 18. And then, you know, carry, continued that until, you know, when I graduated. And, you know, and from there I met somebody at Oakmont uh, that got me a, a job in the financial service uh, industry. You know, his name was Dick Fuhrer, and I've been in that position ever since. And uh, he had his own golf course. And he became right. president of Oakmont. And, and it's just it's just like one thing after another right. how, you know, the the my life uh, long, uh, uh, you know, girlfriend who became my wife or her, her brother, Bobby Stoner, was a teaching professional. You know, OK, it's all starting to come together. Right, and right. as I, I began to start the work, I started to get OK at the game. And it took a few years. Um, probably until my mid twenties. And then, you know, finally started making some USGA events and some doing some things locally and then at the state level. And that's kind of how I got into it. But, you know, the inherent values that you learn from being a caddy and the people that you meet are just so invaluable. They are truly life lessons. You know, I'm a big believer, you know, we just reflected on, you know, grow up, growing up playing sports, but also what you learn from your coaches and, and being part of teams um, you know, kids that are, that I've been able to, have been fortunate enough to mentor uh, on the golf side. That has been a big, I've been a big proponent, get involved with a team sport. Um, I don't think that's going to hurt the benefits that you extract, uh, from that just translate so deeply into the game of golf. You don't ever realize I could, I could still think of things today that have happened to me on the golf course where I'm continually recalling back into my football days from a coach, right, right, uh, you know, and, 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 and it's, it's just been so beneficial, but that's kind of in a long winded way, how I got there. And, you know, so I'm working, um, I'm starting to play and, you know, as luck would have it, you know, you start to have some success and it's, it's, you know, and then you start to wildly meet people that you never thought that you would. So let me ask you this question. You have this really quick rise to, uh, rise in success in the game of golf. As you said, you probably started playing, I'm guessing, 17, 18 is maybe when you started. Right. Okay. A lot of things right now uh, with, with the game of golf is how do we get young kids interested? How do we get people playing and get into the game of golf? But it, it takes so long uh, to play, and it's also uh, it's it's a hard game to learn. You know, you can't just, you know, anyone can go to the bowling alley. I mean, you throw a couple gutters, right. but you're still going to – you'll hit some pins, you'll have a good time. How quickly did it take you to, you know, learn the game, but then also start to get competitive? What is something that maybe sped up your learning curve uh, as best as possible? 
Well, you know, we, we've all heard, you know, Rory started reading, you know, books years ago and, the, right. you know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour repetition thing. I, I think a lot of it transfers over, if I could say it succinctly, uh, from the sport days, you know, uh, hand-eye coordination. Uh, and so I kind of was able to skip over some of that, whereas some might not if they don't have that repetition. And then I have put, put in those hours. Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I sometimes say I'm, I'm not the most talented, but I, I do have passion and, 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 and you have to work at your craft. And, and, and in those early days, um, you know, I was working, I was working a lot of hours, but we didn't have kids. Uh, my wife worked at a retail shop, it's, which was a forerunner of Macy's. And, and, you know, when you're done at six o'clock and, and she's not going to be home until 1030, uh, you know, uh, you know, gotta great, great little store. You got to find something to do. You could do bad things. You could do <laughs> things that you love. And I was passionate about improving myself in the game. And I, I remember um, there was a course that was adjacent to Oakmont that they now use for parking, and it was called Oakmont East Course. Uh, there is no really West Course and East Course at Oakmont. It's just Oakmont. Right. And uh, but the, the the course that was adjacent to it was a public course for many many years, and it had a street light over their putting ring and it was only a half a mile from my house oh, so great. don't you know uh I, I would drive up there you know at sunset at eight nine o'clock in the evening here in the east and and just putt until 10 10 30 and uh you know just to, or go to a range and uh it just was a slow advancement uh, but i think a lot of um the repetitions needed came from you know like a baseball or a basketball or football where you're you're getting that hand eye especially baseball you know with a you know with a bat and the ball kind of uh, similarity to golf so basically what you're saying is this is something that just was introduced to you you took you took a passion to it because of your sports background and then really you're just trying to find any time you can um to, to just add the hours and just chip away at it and get better and better. When did tournament golf, because, you know, everyone has their buddies at the club or buddies at the at the Muni and, you know, maybe throw some beers in the cooler and sure, you know, that one's good. And, you know, that's, that's, that's weekend, you know, golf. But I'm guessing with you, with is how competitive as you are, you knew at some point that tournaments were going to be calling your name. Well, I was very envious of the people that could play. Okay. And uh, we have Sonny Hanna, amateur, that is close to us in our backyard here in western Pennsylvania, in Johnstown. It's about a half hour, 45 minutes away. And uh, back in those days, it was actually on TV. You know, you had to get out. Your young listeners will understand this, the rabbit ears and the antennas and try to, you know, there was no cable. And and so you and, – and, and being around, in and around Oakmont um, – as I mentioned earlier, my boss was uh, an owner of a golf course and president of Oakmont, and you saw things that maybe other people didn't. And, and I just wanted to get better. Uh, this was in an, it, like an, an area or an environment, if you will, that I wanted to be part of. And I love competing. And, you know, golf just affords you that opportunity much more so uh, than any other sport in terms of longevity. And, uh, I could see that early and, um, you know, sure. Just like everybody else, it's frustrating, but, uh, you know, started to have some success with it and you know, how addictive the game can be, uh, especially when, uh, one domino after another starts to fall. 
when you started playing USGA championships and you know one of the toughest things uh, I think is qualifying for any USGA championship but whether it's a USAM US Midam what what have you it's just it's so difficult because you're getting everyone's best there's limited spots to get into a tournament um, do you remember your first you know you've played it in quite a few but uh, I gotta ask what what was the first USGA event you qualified for I got to test my knowledge, but I believe, you know, back then there weren't many. Can we say that? There weren't many that you could qualify. It was like U.S. Open. USAM. U.S. Amateur, U.S. Mid-Amateur. And, well, uh, even U.S. I, Mid-Amateur just as recently as 80, 82 or 80, 81, I'm sorry. So, yeah, there weren't, there weren't that and, many. And I think the first year I was eligible was like, you know, would have been, you know, 86, 87-ish, you know. Okay. But uh, it was a U.S. Amateur, and um, I remember uh, – I'm positive about that. Now I was 88 and somehow I made it, you know, how's that ever happened? And I do remember being paired with Len Matisse, who was a Walker cupper. Yeah. And, uh, it was at the homestead down in Virginia. And I just remember one morning going very early, you know, and, and the thought of having brand new tightless golf balls, you know, I mean, you got to get out like your ping wedge and just take the cover off of a few, <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you're a hack like me, you know, and uh, just a public player, and, and and I'm, you know, I look over and there's Billy Mayfair hitting these high irons up into the hillside, and uh, that was my introduction, and you know, my goodness, I was hooked. Now there, we're gonna we're gonna save the the psychological analysis a little bit later in the episode when I get you buttered up. But well, that could get ugly. I know. <laughs> you, you certainly want to lose all your listeners. Well, I, we are going. Well, we're gonna try and uncover why uh, someone that has a USGA championship and has played in over fifty USGA events thinks he's a hack. But that's later. We're gonna get to that a little bit later. So <laughs> I can't. I got to get you warmed up a little bit first, but. Um, so you get into your first in 88 and I always find it fascinating just kind of getting into the thought process of, okay, now I've made it into one. Wow. I really need to fix this in my game to be able to compete, or I'm going to look at that guy, what he's doing. I don't have that yet. Now I'm not going to ask you about your very first appearance because I think sounds like just with everyone that makes their first appearance, you're kind of wide-eyed and you're just like looking around like, oh my gosh, this is this is a whole new environment. But what were some of the things that you started to pick up as you played in more and more USGA championships that helped you not only be a success throughout your entire, you know, mid-am career and senior career, but some of the things that, that you hold with you as you play the game? Well, that's, that's you know that's a very broad question can can i again backtrack and just say this that from my sports career i was just stupid enough to think that i could compete i think that that u.s first u.s amateur i i wasn't i you know i wasn't one of those guys out there shooting 90 um i i think i think i kind of uh, i don't have the scores I, i i'd have to go back and look but it wasn't it wasn't blowoutville uh, I competed favorably, it, it, but to it, get to your point, and maybe we could talk about it, you know, at some other point, I, you're asking about the advancements in the USJ. A lot of that can be attributed to Nathan Smith, what you're talking about in terms of development. And I was just stupid enough. Uh, and I say that affectionately, uh, uh although some may disagree, but the point uh, is that I started to have accidental success, if you will, like in these USJ events. I think, uh, 
it was, you know, a number of qualifying for USAMs, uh, never making match play. And then uh, I think we come along until like, you know, I think we said the first one was 88. I think, you know, I had two or three more and I had some mid-ams in there. And, uh, and then suddenly, uh, oh, I should say this. I, I get lucky at a U.S. mid-amateur and crooked stick, a medalist, and get to the final eight. Like, you know, I, I, I'm playing practice rounds with legendary play, players like Randy Sonye, and I can't break 85. <laughs> and somehow I, I go out there and just, you know, it was always, you know, I've heard this attributed to Bobby Jones. I don't know if this is true or not, but the, the game of golf is a game of – three components, each of equal importance, you know, and it may, Bobby might not have said that, but he should have, because it, it sounds like something good for him to say. And, and, and it was hands, head and heart. And the hands are your ability to play your heart, the ability to compete under pressure. Well, I, I kind of had that in a lot of these other endeavors that I was involved with. And then your head, that was always been an analytical guy. You said about the mathematics. Sure. So I could do the geometry of how to, manage yourself around a golf course and uh you know uh, and so you know at the end of the day um i don't know what how that all happened but it was happening and and you know sometimes you accidentally win you know it's not a, it's not you know like the nba finals where you you got to get in the playoffs and lose and then get closer and then you finally climb the mountain some people get lucky and win right away and in a sense, that was what was happening with me locally. And even though I wasn't winning a USGA event, I was achieving in them and just not knowing enough to say, this is way more difficult than um, you actually realize. And I think that kind of brought on 95. And that was a very special U.S. amateur. And that's the point where I started to recognize I needed to get better but I was only playing the, arguably the greatest player ever. Um, I was say and that was 90, a very special day at Newport. Yeah, I yeah. was going to say, 95 U.S. Amateur, Newport, and, and up in Rhode Island. And you're, I mean, there's a handful. I mean, every everyone that he's run through, everyone that has that story, but you get to play against Tiger Woods in the 95 U.S. Amateur. So you're saying this is the time where you realize, okay, this is the pinnacle. And I guess it's, very, I guess it's very telling when you have it right in front of you. It's one thing to look at your name and look at your scores on a sheet compared to someone else or watch people hit balls on the range, but you're one-on-one -on -one with arguably the greatest of all time, and it's very evident where, where the differences are. So what was your takeaway after that match? I had never made match play in a USAM. At that point, I qualified for four, five, six, something like that. I had never made match play. And I had had some success in the mid-am. And, of course, it's a lot easier to have at, at that point in time. Maybe not today, but at that point in time to have success in the mid-am. And I just wanted to make match play. And I made match play. I got through my first match. And the talk of the town was that there was a potential matchup in the Sweet 16. Uh, now, I'm in the final 32 of no type of gay, number two ranked player in the world against Tiger Woods. And, of course, I'm looking at the bracket, and I'm saying, I actually play one of those guys. <laughs> They're already talking about the matchup that's going to occur after Nota dusts me up. And um, NBC was doing the telecast. Johnny Miller, the whole crowd that, that, that we've seen just up until recently, 
Uh, it was on ESPN. They come on live, and I've got this after gagging about a three up lead on Nota down to even. I have a putt to win the match, and uh, I make it. So I have number two in the world in the morning. I have number one in the world in the afternoon. That and it's like going to be full, on live. It sounds like a full day. It sounds like a full day. Yeah, you don't get that in the NCAA tournament very often. No. Uh, where you got to play number two and number one. But not only on top of that, it's, you know, arguably the greatest player ever. Uh, and you kind of had a sense of that. He was the defending champion. It's on ESPN. There's like 6,000 people following this match. It's, it, it is the max. You just can't, you know, from a sensory, you talk about the psychology, it's to- total overload, total overload. Okay. And, um, yes, you could sense the greatness. It was so perceptible physically, mentally, every, every which way and sideways. And um, it, it, was, it was just an experience for a lifetime. After playing this match against him, you're feeling I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is like this is a time where you're thinking to yourself, okay, I want more of this. I, I'm guessing with your competitive streak, you, this also just pushes you to want to be back there as quickly as possible. Give me another match like this. I want to go against the best because once you kind of reach that area, you just want more and more. I'm guessing. Absolutely, and and again, you're you're naive. You're somewhat still young, and you think that this is the kind of thing that happens all the time. And um, you know, uh, but yes, uh, I, I remember leaving. Um, and can I say this too? There's a there's a funny yeah. little story. I was getting lessons from Bob Ford, and uh, uh, Oatmont, legendary pro, also seminal uh, club pro, and everybody knows Bob. He's the greatest, and uh, so, you know, uh, my first thought was I've got to get better. And of course, trying to, you know, <laughs> I, I want, it's everything that I'm stuttering here, but it's everything you just said. It's not so much in order to compete. No one's going to compete against a tiger. I recognize that. And I'd had him so much so that I had him autograph my golf bag after the match. Now it's caught <laughs> on TV. Okay. It's caught on oh, TV. Everybody's giving it to me. You know, and the only thing, so so it's like that weekend, and I'm getting this lesson from Bob Ford at Oakmont Country Club, and Bob's just staring at my bag for the first 20 minutes of the lesson, and he's not cheap to go get a lesson to. So I'm kind of like, why? What are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, no. And finally, he just looks at me and goes, Napper, did you get him to autograph the knee pads too? Oh, so, uh, you know, but bottom line, I did have a full recognition of the fact that um, I needed to get better. And uh, but we kept on going on that pace. And um, I think the joke in the family was that, uh, you know, anytime I didn't make every U.S. amateur, uh, you know, I, but thereafter. But I was making, you know, every, you know, fairly frequently. And, and, but when I would make them, it was like, OK you're going to get the number one player in the world, you know? And like, it was like a couple of years later, I played at Baldus role and, and it's Luke Donald, you know, and it's just, and so, uh, you know, it was fun. And, uh, but it was, it, there was obviously this, uh, gap in my game that I recognized. And it was about that time that, we mentioned my boss having his own club and here, here's this other young kid at this 
you know, Hicksville Club uh, outside of Pittsburgh, about 40 miles from my house, named Nathan Smith. And he kind of came into my life. And um, it was from there that I found uh, how to take it to a different level. Interesting. So kind of sounds like uh, Tiger and Nathan were just very – uh, more so Nathan, obviously, but uh, very instrumental in your success. So let's let's change pace here a little bit. I'm going to try something a little bit different. We, we just mentioned Tiger. You just mentioned Luke Donald. And uh, I know you're not doing it in a name-dropping way. I know a lot of there's, you know, everyone knows what a name-dropper is, and you are definitely not yeah, one of I those. Yeah, I hope that. Yeah. No, no, you're yeah, not one of those. Sure. But but um, But you have come come across so many interesting players in your amateur career and different experiences. So... I'm going to try something a little bit different, and I'm just going to throw a name out, and you tell me if you have a story, and let's see how that <laughs> works. So you already nope. gave me a great one with Tiger. Uh, let's uh, well, we we can't skip over Mr. Palmer in the state of uh, Pennsylvania. So let's go with Mr. Palmer. You have a, do you have a Palmer story? I got many, and there, we used to have a thing called the Palmer Cup, not to be confused with the Collegiate Palmer right. Cup. But the pros would play the amateurs at Arnie's course as um, a year-end uh, competition, and Arnie would play. And, uh, uh, boy, I, I think the one singular thing that I remember the most, I'm going to give you two real quick. They're, they're, they're almost not stories. One was playing. Uh, we were in a head-to-head competition. It was a better ball. Him and another pro from Western Pennsylvania, another amateur and myself. And we had won, and this was shortly after Arnie's um, prostate surgery. And um, he was a little weaker, still looked great. Just, I mean, just a man's man. And here we're like two up after like three holes, and 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 the pro on his team was X, and Arnie had missed the green on this par three, and we're probably going to go three up. And I look at uh, the, the amateur player that I'm paired with, and my partner, and I said, "Hey, we got to be careful here. Um, we don't want this thing getting out of control." Well, something happens. Arnold chips in from like the trees on this par three, impossible. And this glimmer in his eye, it was consistent with everything that I've ever seen with any greatness I've ever been around. And that doesn't have to be on the golf course. Right. And it was a reflection back to the day. And I'm here to tell you, he went around and played like five under the rest of the way, and we got <laughs> murdered. <laughs> so, so enough of trying to give away holes, and we couldn't win holes. And, the, and, and that was just so um, – that was so awesome to see that up front, you know, a reflection back in time. Because, you know, at that point he was like 70 or 71 yeah. years old. And, and, and the way they set up that golf course for that event, it's, it's over the top, you know. And, you know, like, no way somebody can do that, and here he just did it. And uh, the other thing I'll say real quickly was to hear stories. Arnie had a tender, you know, 10 seat table that was his. And it just so happened. It seemed like every year for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, I would come in, my match would be over usually because I was getting beat by Bob Ford, like five and four. Sure. And, and I was done early and Arnold would call you over and I'd say, Mr. Palmer, I'm, he says, no, Sean, I know exactly oh, who you are. Come and sit down. Oh. And, and the stories would start, and uh, too innumerable to just right. continue here. But I think the one thing that will transmit to your listeners, or try to tr- you know relay, it got to a point where when you're around somebody like that, um, at some point you want to hear more. You've heard the same stories, and and, and I, it's not to say that you're tired of those, 
but you want a little more. Right. And so you began to ask questions and, uh, you know, about his associations with presidents, you know, uh, Hollywood, uh, his swing. And it, and it got to be like a little golf channel or back of the range interview. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was so cool. And, um, it, 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 th- those two things are, are my Arnie story and, uh, stories. And, and there's so much more that you could go into and delve into, but just to be around that was just so cool. That's, you know, that's, a gosh, I just can't imagine. I mean, that's right up there with someone, you know, with, with Hogan pulling you over for lunch at Shady Oaks or something like that. I mean, that's just that. Well, you, you know, he, you know, have, uh, Hogan and, 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 and Arnie were not uh-huh. close. Uh-huh. And in fact, oh, I, know that. I made the mistake. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, no, you, no, you know, the story, go, if, go ahead, go well, ahead. Uh, we're going down the first hall and I'm somewhat of a golf historian, just enough to be dangerous with people. You know? Welcome to my I, world. I know enough, but I, yeah, exactly. You know, I, I know enough, but I know nothing. And we were walking down the first hole and, you know, somewhere along the line, you know, when you're around somebody that's big league or, or great like Arnie, you ask them not about themselves, you ask them about somebody else. Right. And so I make the mistake. I thought about asking about a number of people and I said, Mr. Palmer, would you tell me your best Hogan story? Oh. <laughs> well, you know, and they didn't get along, you know, so he didn't even talk to me for like a whole. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, Ooh, I, you know, what the, you know, did he not hear me? And then finally we're kind of on the, uh, if any of your fans have played Latrobe, it's a, it's a dog leg par five, number three over water. And, 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 and so we have some time here and uh, he says, well, Sean, let me tell you my best Hogan story. <laughs> and he goes, the year would be, I want to say 1958. Um, he goes, the tour was not like it used to be, uh, or like, like it is today. It, it, it was much different back then. He goes, he, he played three events in, 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 in California, never higher than third, came back, and I believe they played Greensboro after traveling all the way around the country or across the country. Uh, he gets into a playoff with Art Wall. Now, this is the the uh, on Sunday, and the Monday was an 18-hole playoff, and that would have been Masters Monday week. Right. And um, uh, he goes, I didn't want to be there for the playoff. I wanted to get to Augusta. I was anxious. And um, it, it, make a long story short, he goes, I just did not play well. And I lose the playoff, go down on Tuesday to play with Ken Venturi, Hogan, Dal Fisterwald, and Arnie. And he goes, I'm, I'm just wiped out. Across the country, tournament, losing the playoff on Monday. He goes, I'm wiped out. I play terrible. Dal plays great. Shoots like something like 66. They had played a $10 Nassau. And on the 18th hole, Arnie birdies it to win the, you know, win, win the press. And he goes, just as you see it on TV, Sean, he goes, we're walking up to the clubhouse. And he hears Hogan uh, say, overhears Hogan say to Ken Venturi, how did this fella get in the golf tournament? And as only Arnie can say, and in a manner only, in a tone only Arnie could articulate, he says, you know, Sean, in 1958, I won the Masters. Yeah. He goes, plus I took. 40 bucks off that son of a bait. <laughs> and, and he went on to say that, it, it, that, that his big thing was he just never would refer to him as, uh, you know, uh, Arnold. Uh, it was always, hey, fellow or Mr. Yeah, Palmer. And yeah. uh, 
and, and only as Arnie could do, uh, uh, just not something that was uh, hostile. It, it was just an uncomfortability with the fact that here was this gregarious individual, Arnold Palmer, and um, I, I think he wanted that association with everybody, and that just wasn't what Hogan was about, even though Hogan was great in his own right. Yeah, yeah. I just, I one of the things I always think about when I think of, of uh, Mr. Palmer is is how perfectly timed everything was in the universe for him to be the guy when, um, you know, Mark McCormick comes around and when TV becomes uh, when TV really elevates the game, he is the perfect person to be in that spot. And I, and I, I, I always think about that. Like I don't couldn't know, agree with you more. Yeah, I just couldn't agree like, with you more. Sort of like Tiger in a sense. Yeah, that. exactly. Like you have to have that guy or that or that woman at that perfect time. And I just even think as much as Hogan is is revered and the mystique, I don't know how that would have translated if Hogan was the the number one guy at the time when TV launches. How different would things have been if if it was Hogan instead of Palmer? Yeah, uh, or you know, or Bobby Jones from days gone by, you know, which he was widely recognized, two ticker tape parades, right. et cetera. But uh, yeah, it, it just there was always just something about Arnie, and you know, and that's just so cool that he's from our area, and you know, we have that association. Yeah, give me a good Seminole story. Now that we're kind of talking a little bit about Mister, you know, Bob Ford and the connection between Seminole and Oakmont, and then we're talking a little bit about Hogan. So let's let and. You know, Seminole, as most people know, it's, uh, I mean, it was great to see it on TV during the, one of the COVID charity matches. I think TaylorMade was the, yeah, TaylorMade charity match that they did. And now, I mean, we got the Walker Cup coming up and next year. So, so give me a good Seminole story. I'm sure you got one. There's actually a few, but I think the one that comes to mind, uh, my first year down there, Bob had just got the head job at Seminole, but also he, he was still a head pro at, at Oakmont. Um, you know, so he would go six months there and then six months down at Seminole and they had just started their national mid-am tournament at the end of the day. Uh, I go down to play the Coleman and, uh, Bob says, why don't you stay with me? You know? And I said, fine. So here, that whole routine in terms of getting to the club and it, it, it it's just going to be different, you know, cause you're, you know, I call Arnold the King and I call Bob Ford. Uh, affectionately, K-O-A-C-P, acronym for King of All Club Pros. There you go. And he truly is that. He truly is that. I, I, I really mean that. He, he's legendary. And so here I'm getting to do things that other players aren't. like. It, it, so we get there early. And we go through the innards of Seminole, uh, you know, through the kitchen and get a Diet Coke. And now we come out to the putting green, and there's no one there. Uh, there's limitations as to when you can get there and when you are allowed to stay there. They're extended for the tournament. And I want to say we're there somewhere around 10 to 7, and no one's allowed to get there until 7 o'clock tournament week. And I do this little routine, this north-south, east-west putting drill with tees. It's similar to what Phil Mickelson does. and. uh, I just, these greens, I'm looking at them. It's, it's sunny out. It's beautiful. It's anything that Pittsburgh is not. And, uh, and I'm thinking, I just want to hit some putts. And Bob just is not like Bob, just keeps talking. And he's talking. And I just want to start my drills. And finally, I drop the balls down as if to say, I'm going to do my drills. Right. And Bob goes, pick, the, pick those up. Uh-huh. And I pick them up. 
And he keeps talking. Uh-huh. And I'm like, this is so unlike Bob. What is going on? Right. And he's looking at his watch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then finally, it's 7 o'clock, and he goes, Napper? Napper? He goes, now you can start. <laughs> Just not a lot of practice before 7 o'clock, boy. That's great. <laughs> like, so okay. he's just rambling just to cut, just to buy some just time. Just to kind of like, I don't really want to tell you why you're not allowed right, to do this. Right. But it, uh, the place is special, and, uh, you know, obviously my relationship with Bob's been special through the years, too. That's that's another one for another time. That's a great That's a great story. Um We've talked. We've nibbled around the edges here a little bit. Uh, we've talked about uh, about your your really good close friend Nathan Smith. He uh, he was actually the guest on the the last episode here of the Back of the Range. So he was. So he he was. You're you're following up Nathan Smith. When did you first meet Nathan? We mentioned that uh, uh, my boss owned a, a club. Its name was St. Jude, St. Jude being the patron saint of the uh, desperate and hopeless. And uh, my boss wanted you to feel like that whenever uh, you were over a five-footer at St. Jude. And, and, and you know what? You really did. It was, it, was, it was a great course to develop and learn, even though it was a little bit away from Pittsburgh. And uh, Nathan was – Sort of, we were sort of, the St. Jude was in between Pittsburgh and Brookville, about uh, 100 miles from Pittsburgh is Brookville, and the golf course St. Jude was in between, almost equidistant. And uh, uh, Nathan's father was a client uh, of uh, our corporation, and uh, uh, that's how my boss got uh, uh, Nathan's father, Larry, uh, to get Nathan to start to come down and play. Um, and I just started to make some of the rounds, uh, in terms of having some success. And that's how I was introduced to him. You know, his father asked me when he was down here for an appointment during a, during a review, he said, would you be willing to play with my son? And, uh, his son just won the state high school championship and off we went. And so Nathan, uh, went from being, uh, infrequent, you know, player with us on the weekends to where there was a lot of room in the group and he started to get better. And I just remember, uh, we played over a number of years, probably when he was first, he was 17. And then by the time he was 24, he was going to graduate school. Um, you know, the joke was that he just kept on going to school so he could play golf. (laughs) Uh, but he was in graduate school and he, he, he was very accomplished by then. Uh, but he hadn't a, achieved on the national level and to a certain degree, even the state level. And I just remember so distinctly how um, he would always find a way to not beat me. And we would play 36 holes like almost every weekend by then. And we, we almost went a whole year. And I, I don't really know that he beat me once. And, um, and then something happened the next year. Uh, he was 25 and I did not beat him one time during the course of the year, and he won the U.S. Mid Amateur. And uh, that pattern's pretty much continued ever since. But he's, uh, he's done okay. He got that good. He got that good. We've talked about this previously. How you know you've had all these appearances in USJ Championships. You've found the the final sixteen and quarters and final four, and you, you've had this comment to me that you felt that maybe. You know, you were never supposed to win one. You you kind of were close, but you were a bridesmaid. That's kind of what your your career was. 
but at some point you you do break through and you win the first you win in 2017 at the u.s senior the first year that you're eligible and i think it's something that listeners would find interesting because you know look we're we're all not at that level where we're, we're chasing down and knocking on the door of a usga championship but we all want to get better we all have things that hold us back from getting better and whether it's trying to win a club championship or win a couple bucks off our buddies in a in a weekend right. game you know can you maybe pinpoint something that nathan helped you with or what you figured out yourself to eventually be able to push through and not just be satisfied with getting close but actually closing the deal you know all those things that you've just reiterated for your listeners is just so poignant it almost makes my hair want to stand up on edge and and but uh, i guess the cliff note version would be that that nathan only won when he was 25, then he, he began to win more and um, uh, at the U.S. Mid-Amateur. And, and you're watching him play in the Masters. You're watching him play in Walker Cups. and But yet we're still playing on the weekend, right. 36 holes. And uh, I, I just remember being so flabbergasted with some of my performances being so good for me. And, you know, you, you, you'd go out and you'd shoot a 65 and he would shoot a 63. You, you you know you'd back it up in the afternoon with a you know 66 and these are like scores i can't shoot regularly and he'd shoot 64 and it's just like there was this wall you're never going to beat him and um i think it was somewhere around the time he had won 3 of them i, I began to just observe his method of play and uh, you know i don't want to get into being you know the old guy that's yelling at clouds about distance right now but he had a methodology, and I began to observe it. And it basically involved just tightening up everything in my game so that it was more like Nathan. And, uh, but, but from a bottom line, I particularly noticed how good he was with his short game in and around the green to always get it within a makeable distance. It was analytics before analytics. Okay. And um, if you didn't get it close enough, you just weren't going to make a pot. So his chipping was always tight. And then um, I began to practice my uh, – we talked about that north-southeast drill, uh, really to improve my short putting. And so what you see out of somebody like Nathan is he has all these arrows in his quiver. He can drive it great. He can hit his irons great. He can chip it. He's a great pitcher of the ball. And he's just a tremendous putter. But if one of those elements is off, he can rely on one of the other foundations in his game. And he just doesn't ever seem to play bad. And I came to the conclusion that I may not be able to beat this guy, but if I could just close the gap, right. I may not be able to beat him. I'm going to have a lot of success against a lot of other people. Sure. And that's kind of how I started to get better. And, you know, from a consistency standpoint, you know, that's what it takes in a USJ event. I think that's what it takes in a club championship. Sure. You know, you're not making big numbers. It's all relative. And um, I think when I was 49, I got to my further, my deepest in any USJ event. It was, the, it was in Milwaukee. Um, I got to the Final Four of the U.S. Mid-Am, and uh, I ran up against Todd Mitchell, who's all-world, and he's a forerunner of hitting it 10 miles. And, uh, I, you know, I did not win that match, but I thought that that was going to be it. And then 
So that's 49, and I think a couple years later, yeah. um, it's up at Atlantic. Yeah. I think Nathan wins. So, you know, Nathan wins his third there. So he had won a couple, and then this became his third. And there was hurricanes that come in, and I'm, I'm a conditioning kind of guy. And we ended up playing 54 holes in one day. And I remember the guy that was playing against Nathan in the semis said to me, Sean, how do you feel? And I'm like, I'm like, I feel great. You know, we're playing 54 holes in one day. This is me. This is what all I do. Right. And he's like, I'm gassed. So I play Tim Hogarth, who had rededicated his whole life to conditioning yeah. and had won a USG event and I lose in the final four there. And Nathan goes on to win. And so, okay, that was close. And in Milwaukee, it was close at Atlantic. And two years later, I, 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 I go to Conway Farms and I'm playing the best golf of my life. And there's a whole other story we won't get into where we said I never beat Nathan in a year. I rarely beat Nathan in those days. And I was playing really good golf. And I had this series of days where in prior to leading up to it, like over Labor Day, and then the mid-am comes and we play practice rounds together and then the qualifying rounds. And now I face him in the final 16. I'm playing the best golf of my life. And uh, I have him two down with four to go. And I can honestly say I didn't really play bad to the close. It's what great champions do. They find a way to win, and I lose – on a 19th hole, there's a great picture of us hugging. I'm, I will afterwards. Uh, people are going to be seeing this picture. So yeah, this this is what I actually. I'm glad you. I'm just going to stop real quick and just highlight this. I've showed this picture to people. Um, I've showed this picture to people that are not familiar in amateur golf, where I'm just you know maybe they, they kind of follow golf a little bit, but they don't know. They couldn't pick you or Nathan out of the picture, which you know it it is what it is. And I'm like, all right, look at this picture. Who won? I get answers all over the map, and I've told Nathan this too, and it's one of the most fascinating yeah. things I've ever seen. Two really close friends play a really tight match, and at the end, it basically has a feeling, and it looked like you both got disqualified. There does not look <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, it was one of those things where, uh, you know, and this is a long-winded story or, or tale, to say you would ask me um, – you know, did I ever think I was going to win one? And here I am playing the best that I ever have. And I could honestly say that even if I would have won that match, I don't know that I could have carried it on to win. Yeah, but yeah. I was really playing well. Nathan did do that. He was able to take that win and, and then go on. And, and it's a match that even as I think about it today, you know, uh, it's like, how did I end up losing that? You know, and that's just what greatness does. And Nathan's great. And, um, so at the end, you know, when we, when I lose on the first playoff hole, I mean, that, that's, that's the scene and, uh, Nathan's so gracious. And so it was at that point and it, one of the tough things that you find, you know, we referenced the tiger match final six, you don't get an exemption for getting to the final. You need to get to the final eight. Yeah. So here I lose to Nathan. I just had these runs we mentioned and I don't have an exemption back to the next year. And you know, I don't, I don't qualify for another USJ event until the U.S. Senior Amateur, and it just that, that was just a magical year, uh, you know, in terms of how things developed and all the lessons that I learned from my entire life can be compartmentalized and put into that USJ event, and I win. 
And it, it just like, it was like, you're never going to do this, Sean, was my feeling after I lost with Nathan. And then suddenly to flip that switch over to well, or over to where, wow, you've done it. Yeah. And at first, can I say this? Yeah. I poo-pooed it a little bit. I'm like, oh, it's a U.S. senior. A lot of old guys, it's right? Not the, There's old yeah, guys. Yeah, it's there. old guys. It's, 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 it's not the mid-am. It's not the U.S.M. You always wanted to win one of those. And then I began to think about it on my way home. I'm like, well, Nathan won four mid-ams, but he never won a U.S.M. Do you think that he sits there and says, I never won a U.S.M.? You got a golf trophy and, that says uh, United States on it, man. I mean, uh, that's that's pretty strong stuff. Well, for your listeners, everything that encapsulates that in terms of things that you get to go and do and play in, like the Senior Open with uh, the, the uh, Senior Open champ and the British champ. I mean, it's pretty it's cool. overwhelming. Yeah. And I couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> it was it was unbelievable. So it's it's it, it, if if you do one of them in your lifetime, it's enough. Yeah, I'm waiting till I turn 55 before I start chasing that down. That's uh, <laughs> just focusing on the, Nathan around, and it, he'll lead you to the promise. Well, <laughs> perfect. Let's see if I can buy a ticket to that show. Uh, so basically, what you're saying, which everyone can kind of translate to their own lives, is find the best damn golfer you can and let him beat the crap out of you for a while and get closer <laughs> to him. Is that basically it? That and, and and then through if you can look at it through the prism of how can I get a little bit better, right? And 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 that you know little things done well become big things. Little things done well become big things, and and that's kind of the story of how I went from being a caddy to winning an international championship. And I'm so glad you brought up the fact about qualifying because. You know, if you win a USGA or you get into these semis, you do get exemptions. You do get exemptions into future tournaments. But if you're not winning and you're not getting super close, you got to do it all over again the next year and sign up for qualifiers. And USGA qualifiers are no joke. So I think that's what makes your accomplishments even more and more incredible and impressive. So, um, gosh. Well, thank you. I, you know, it, it, most of them have been qualifying and yeah. – um, you know, uh, now I've been fortunate enough and been blessed enough to have a few exemptions sure. and, and going forward, certainly with the senior. But, uh, you know, where, where did you – what USJ event did you qualify? You said you could oh, qualify for just Oh, you're buttering up the host. I love – I've never – I've, I've never had a guest ask this question. And I could say proudly, uh, my hopes and dreams of a USGA championship were dashed uh, – by your good friend Nathan Smith in 2012 at the U.S. Mid-Am. He was able to, I mean, I really, and I told him, I said, this has to be the highlight of your career, winning a USGA event when I was in the field. Um, That's it. Yeah, no, we had we had a good laugh. It was about Conway that. Farms. It was Conway, it was Conway Farms, Farms. Conway Farms 2012. We had a good laugh about and that. And that's, that, that's where that picture's from, too. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. You got past now, me, too. Let me ask you this. You got past I mean, me. Just qualifying for one is something. Oh, of course. Everybody should aspire to do. Yeah, no. One of, one of the highlights of, of, of my uh, of, of my playing, uh, just getting into one, no. Very, very, very cool experience. I, I can't uh, say enough about playing in a USGA championship. Only did it once, but gosh, it would be great to do it again. What Now, you you alluded to your, your all the things that come along with winning a USGA championship. You win the 2017 US Senior Amateur. Before I ask you all the highlights, this is someone. This is a. This is someone I need to get for the podcast. You might be able to help me out with this. But damn it, give me a good Paul Simpson story. 
because that's who you beat in the final. He's won two previous U.S. Senior Amateurs, and uh, right. That guy, I some I've had. I think it was Nathan that told me he's like, just get a bottle of wine and just try and get him to talk. And uh, I'll be amazed at the stories I would get from him. But but you're go, you know exactly who Simpson is when you're playing against him in the final. Paul beat me in the finals of uh, fi- final, uh, not the finals, the semi or uh, quarterfinals. No, it was. I'm going to be wrong. It goes back too long. It was NCR. I think it was in the semis. It would have been the quarters to get to the semis, and I kind of had him beat, and then he beat me in extra holes. And then there was a U.S. Open qualifier, sectional qualifier, uh, here in our backyard at Sunny Hanna. And I uh, I had a five-footer horseshoe on the first playoff hole against Paul to go to Olympic, and then he bombed in about a 60-footer on me in the next hole. And uh, so I owed him a few. I owed him a few, if not some other things that I probably forgot about. Uh Uh-huh. But um, uh, Paul was great that day, and we, we, had, a, we had a great match. Uh, there, there's nothing really about that match other than, um, you know, I just remember how, uh, how welcoming Paul was. You know, there was no gamesmanship. It was all business for us. And uh, when it was all over, he said, we even? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, I, I, and uh, you know, he, he, he was just, a, you know, the following year after this, uh, I lost to Jeff Wilson in the finals. Yeah. Nobody remembers oh. when you're runner up and, but you remember it and you remember the disappointment. And if you have one, which Paul's one and he's legendary, uh, there's a great amount of disappointment because you just wonder if you're ever going to get it back to that point again. I know I felt that. And in retrospect, seeing how he treated me, uh, I know the position that he was in. I have empathy for that, and um, you know, I, 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 you know, he, he's a, he's a wonderful person, and and I, I always remember those moments with him. So the benefits of winning a U.S. Senior Amateur, you get into the next year's U.S. Senior Open, and I'm guessing I don't have all my notes in front of me. Is this your first major that you've played in? No, there's a great story about this. Um, uh, the, I'll tell you my Bernard Longer story. Of you course. ask me Bernard Longer, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you Bernard Longer. But there's also Kenny Perry. I, the USGA did something that year that they really haven't done in since. I wish they would go back to it. They held this um, celebration of champions. It was up at Shinnecock. Oh man, I can't even. It was on TV. I think Fox televised it, and it was a alternate shot four hole. Yeah, format. I remember that. And Kenny Perry's in my group, and uh, everybody had a partner, and you know, off you go, and you're going to play four holes. It's on TV, and it, and it was harder than you can believe. It was crazy. Anyways, I mean, it was really out of control on Wednesday, and and and, and so here I got to talking with Kenny, and I said, Kenny, this is really weird that we have this pairing. I said we're going to be playing out uh, together uh, at the Broadmoor. Uh, Thursday and Friday, along with uh, uh, Bernard Longer. And I said, maybe it would be good if we played a practice round. Would you be willing, just so you get a load of my act? <laughs> you, you don't want to be teeing it up Thursday and Friday without kind of getting used to putting up with me. Welcome to the shit show. Let me give you a sneak <laughs> Well, I get there and um, to, the, to the Broadmoor, and there are no times for Kenny Perry but Kenny had already taken care of that. Oh, you couldn't see his time as the defending champion. 
but I was listed. And uh, so we go out and we play a practice round. This is like, you know, Monday or Tuesday before the tournament. He starts talking. I got, what does Bernard like to play with? Greatest guy ever. Great sense of humor. You wouldn't see that from TV. He's stoic. He's European German. You've got to teach. You've got to do that. And Kenny's telling me all these things I got to do. And I'm like, I'm doing none of that. Right, <laughs> these right. guys are going to try to win the golf tournament. Right. I'm just here for the crap show. And but we get in the buffet line, and it's a huso. I mean, just everybody on the senior tour, and it's noisy and it's loud. And across from me in the buffet line is Bernard Long. I had not yet met him, and I'm thinking about what Kenny says. He has a good sense of humor, and I decide that this might be the right time, even though, you know, everybody has food in their hands to introduce myself. And I said, Bernard, I said, Mr. Longer, uh, my name is Sean Knapp. I'm going to be playing with you uh, Thursday and Friday along with Kenny Perry. I thought it would be just, you know, a decent thing to just say hello. And he goes, oh, nice of you. Nice of you. Now it's like one of those commercials, you know, like everybody stops talking. Uh-huh. And Bernard says, he goes, have you played in any of these before? I had played in like three or four of them before, but everybody's quiet and they want to hear the answer. And I said, yeah, I said, actually, I have played in a couple of these. How about you? Oh, God. <laughs> Anyways, it, it brought a little smile to his face <laughs> and uh, needless to say, we had a great time and um, over the next few days. And I can't say enough about what a great human being Kenny Perry is and what a terrific person Bernard Longer is. I mean, you know, you talk about thrills of a lifetime, the Forrest Gump, you run into these people as you go through your life. I mean, really? I mean, I've been blessed. I, I love the fact that you're you're so comfortable with these guys just to have a little fun with them right in front. I mean, that's, I love that. I think that's the only way you can do it. Um, I think that's, I think that's great. Did you not have Hale Irwin on your uh, podcast? I, I did have Hale Irwin on my podcast. Real quick, there's a Hale Irwin story to this too. So, sure. like you know, Fox is doing coverage. Hale's on there. Hale's like Mister <clears throat> Colorado. You know, uh, you know, he legendary on the tour. I- I'm not so sure that he's totally comfortable with amateurs. I-, I could, I could be wrong. I could be right. But I'm on the range, and Fox is doing this preliminary interview for that pairing that we're about to have on Thursday. And they're trying to get a, you know, you know, what's the Sean Knapp story? Right. And Hale can hit anywhere on this range. There's nobody on the range. He's hitting right beside where I'm doing this interview. And uh, he would back off kind of looking disturbed at me. Uh-oh. Like, like, why are you interrupting my practice session with your interview? And I don't know that that's genuine or not, but that's the way I took it. And, uh, so the interview goes on for about a half hour with Fox and the assistant runs out of there and then Hale backs off. Now I'm going to, I'm going to practice. And I look at him and I just thought I got to have some fun with this. And I said, you know, uh, I don't even know why I got that interview, but I told him I was Hale Irwin and they gave me 30 minutes. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> at first I thought he was going to pluck my eyes out, but then he just, uh, he started laughing and we shook hands and it was fun. But, uh, that's great. Anyways, just the kind of cool stuff that you get to experience. That is fantastic. Um, man, <laughs> you just like, <laughs> you like stirring up some shit, don't you? No, I, I just like having fun. Of course. And, um, you know, I'm not, if you haven't gotten it 
you know, already, uh, I'm just like anybody else. And, and I, and I, I like to treat everybody like that. And I like to be treated like that and not any, um, more than the ordinary guy. And I kind of, that was my upbringing. Um, that's who I am. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm a fighter. You know, when we get into a match, I'm, oh. I'm going to give it all. But at the same time, uh, I, I, I don't have any personal prejudices in the sense that I, I, I'm, be- I'm better than somebody else. Yeah. What um, I, w- I want to ask you, I mentioned this earlier, you know, you work so hard on your game and you, you, you really are passionate about it. In your years that you've uh, been playing competitively on the, on the national level, um, and I guess you could probably throw Nathan in here, but let's see if we can get a different answer to this question. Um, who, who have you seen that's worked harder than you? And I'm not talking about the talent or the resume or just all, or the results, but some guy throughout your career that you've seen, man, he uh, he seems to be at the range before me, and he always has he's always hitting one more bucket before he leaves. Have you run into anyone like that that's maybe pushed you? Not in that sense. I don't practice to out compete with somebody else. I I practiced in order to get better. But oh, a modern course. day, a mo- there have been a lot of them. And, and can I say this of all the guys that? Um, Two bits of advice that I got from Johnny Miller and Arnold. I'm going to answer your question here. And I was not asking because I fully recognized I was never good enough to play at the next level. But I always liked this information. Um, And I had asked them both. They answered this both in the same way. I said, if you just made the PGA Tour today, what advice would you give that person if if somebody just made the PGA Tour today? What advice would you give that person? And they both said the same thing. Don't change a thing. Right. Don't change a thing. And um, it, what I want to say by that is uh, whatever it took for you to get out there, uh, and, and there are hundreds of guys that we've seen, get, they all work hard. They all work hard. But I think a modern-day guy that kind of works that hard is Stuart Hagstead. Um, you know, Stu and I are close friends. You know, and uh, it, 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 I see that a lot out of him. You know, in fact, we we tease. You know, like you know, I, I'm I'm out here outworking you. I'm outworking you, brother. <laughs> you know, and uh, I know he outworks me, but uh, and he's way more talented than me. But uh, that's just something that uh, even out of band, and we we were we were having some fun with. Sure. What uh, before I let you go? What are some things that you are looking forward to? Um, you know, obviously this this great resume. You're you're a member of several uh, Hall of Fames and numerous appearances and and Pennsylvania Amateur Championships, Mid Ams. Uh, gosh, just the list goes on and on. But uh, I, I'm just listening to you and talking to you. I I don't get the feeling that you are satisfied. So uh, so what's next for you? What are you working on right now to get ready for? You know, with the way the game is, it's difficult to compete with the young guys anymore. It's certainly, um, it's a distance-oriented game. And yeah. I think you're you're limited as to how far up that food chain you can get through distance. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, you'd like to think maybe one more good run in any event, you know, whether it's uh, a USM and making the cut. I don't know that that's possible. That's so difficult. That might be more difficult than making a cut at the U.S. Open today, just if you go yeah. and look at the numbers and think about that. But uh, maybe one more good run at a Ben Am. Uh, you know, I'd like to think I can, you know, make, you know, I got some exemptions for the senior. I, I just. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. I love the pursuit of it, 
and I love, I think we all love the element of the game that says where you get to that point where you're able to push beyond a place that you didn't think you could go. And uh, that's, that's where I want to go. I, I want to try to have one more time in my life where I'm able to achieve something I didn't think I could. And, and if I don't, that's fine too. I'm perf- perfectly comfortable with what's gone down, but that's my, that's my goal. And uh, that was something I watched, you know, Arnie go through, you know, um, uh, you know, in his career, he, he was always pursuing excellence, you know, and uh, he had passion. You know, I've talked to you, one of my great quotes, nothing great is ever achieved without passion. And so it's that passion. It's that passion to compete. I love being around the guys. It's not this Hall of Fame or this championship or this, that. Those are good. Those are fun. It's all the other stuff. It's all it's 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 the internal game. It's the camaraderie, and it's the competition, and uh, it's the desire to get better. Well, Sean, I, I greatly appreciate this. Uh, I love I love all the stories. I love this, and I also love the message where if you have a passion for the game, passion for anything, but if you have a passion for the game of golf and you work really hard, you can find yourself with a lifelong uh, list of experiences and memories that are that, that will be with you for the rest of your life so I, i'm glad you took the time to share some of those with with me and the listeners today uh i have a feeling we may need to do this again so i hope you'll come back at some point to uh, to the back of the range i appreciate it thanks ben and you know just thanks for the opportunity to share and it, it, it I, hopefully this will encapsulate and touch one person whether it be young whether it be old and motivate them to have their second chance opportunity in life. And there you have it. Special thanks to Sean Knapp for joining me on this episode here at the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. Many more episodes are coming for you, so make sure you are subscribed in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Don't forget we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Go to thebackoftherange.com if you want to get some merch. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.